This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. Bringing your work home with you, talking to your boss when you want to quit. What is your favorite beer? All this and more on today's episode as Andrew and I answer your burning questions where almost nothing is off limits. Episode 83, Ask the Show. Special thanks to BQE Core, cloud-based software for time and expense tracking, billing, and accounting for their generous support of today's episode. Welcome to the Life of an Architect podcast. I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. And today I am excited. Andrew is excited. Yes. Presumably. Well, I haven't asked you. You're excited though, right? Yeah, I like these episodes. Yes, because today is an Ask the Show Day, where we pull the curtain back and let you take control of the show, you, the listener. So once again, we turn to social media and ask people to submit questions to us to discuss, and you did not disappoint. In fact, you over-delivered. You overachieved, because we received almost 100 questions total, and we really only have time to get to somewhere between 6 and 10. <laughs> You got a 10% possibility there. I know. It's terrible numbers. However, I was actually thinking that maybe we should figure out how to do like a live show, you know, a show where we can stay on for as long as we want. People can come and go. They can ask us questions in real time and we can shoot from the hip with our answers. There won't be any editing. So it's the burden, you know, for us to answer some of these questions is not that big a deal. I also think that we could probably do it in the evening where, Andrew, you can come up to the house, we can treat it like a live cocktail party, and have conversations with the people, like if we just had everybody over to my house. Right? Yeah, that would be good. Right? We got to figure out how to do that. Yeah, we, maybe we could make it happen in 2022. Well, I don't know. Maybe it could happen over the Christmas holiday break. Eh, maybe so. Maybe so. You know, maybe. We'll see. So, we're answering questions, and there was actually, again, there's a bunch of questions that we're not going to be answering because nobody really wants to know what color underwear I'm wearing. <laughs> I mean, I don't think they do. Yet somehow that's become one of the joke questions that people submit. It's what color underwear am I wearing? Mm -hmm. And then some people ask some really deep, hard questions. <laughs> A question that would take the whole show to answer appropriately. That yeah. one question. I yeah. mean, I can appreciate, we got a couple of like planning and zoning questions and like, you know, I go, you know what, that's just, it's too overly specific to what I think this listener group, I feel bad for saying this. We kind of chose the questions because we thought the most number of people who typically listen to the show might have an interest in hearing the answer. And we chose not to answer questions that were so specific that we thought, okay, Bill, here's the answer to your question. Everyone else can unplug for a little while, right? That's what we tried to avoid. Yeah. Yeah. So if we didn't answer your question, A, I'm sorry, B, maybe it was one of those overly specific, very specific to like you and your situation type questions. Three, I can't remember if I said B or, or not. The third question is maybe we save these. We always say that, but then we don't get to them. But maybe that's the cocktail party. Maybe we just continue answering some of these questions during our live on air cocktail party. Maybe so. Yeah. Or maybe we take some and we could turn them into blog posts. Yeah. Yeah. Do a post, but that's some answers or something. Yeah. So let's get into it, right? So we can try to get through as many of these as we can and still provide something of value. So the first question, 
and I might say some of these names wrong. Let me say this real quick. So normally what we do is when you submit a question and we answer it, we put a link back to that person's Instagram account. So when you're listening and you're like, oh, here's that person. They asked a good question or whatever. I can go look and see who they are. Maybe they jive with what you're thinking or you have the same kind of question. Maybe you guys can connect. I don't know. But not everybody puts their name on their Instagram account. So if you're, you know, shlomo. I'm not going to say the rest of it. If you're that person and it doesn't say, my name is really Dave Miller, I don't know what to call you. So I might get that wrong. Yeah. So the first one comes from Chris Rajkumari. And Chris's question is, how can one learn or gain experience in new things at a very small firm and with no mentors? That's a good question. It's a solid question, actually. Yeah. Yeah. That's why we let off with it. So do you want to take this one first? Or do you want me to jump in? It doesn't matter. We want to switch back and forth. Yeah. I'll take this one first. All right. You take this one first. You know, I would say, and this is for me because I actually, I've only worked in small firms and in the beginning I worked at a small firm and I didn't have any mentors locally. And, you know, the way that I found mentors as my career moved forward was through professional organizations, right? Like the AIA or something like that. Some other architectural organization. Right. And sometimes even other volunteer organizations where they may not be necessarily mentoring me in architecture, but they were mentoring business and things like that. And that's mainly, you know, because I was running my own business. But I think you have to try to find a way to seek out someone outside of your office. And I think most people, well, I shouldn't say most, but you find the right person, they're willing to do that for you. And I don't know that it's... Well, keep in mind, this is not a mentor question. They don't have a mentor. It's like, how can I get experience at new things without a mentor? Mm. Okay. Right. So I was under the assumption they were looking for one, but you're saying not even looking for one, but just trying to do things without one. Yeah. This is like, I don't have access to a lot of stuff. I work in a small firm. There's no mentors. We do like three things. How do I learn? How do I broaden my skill set? How do I become better at additional things? Like, how can I do that? And I will say that when I read this question, like, I don't really think that I had a mentor for years. Other than I, I could point to my boss and say, I learned things from my boss. I looked up to them at the time as someone who had skill set that I admired and I wanted to develop and I could watch their behavior and say, do more like what they do, right? So I guess it kind of counts as a mentor, but I did not seek them out to provide guidance and direction for my life and my career. Yeah. So things are different now as far as like getting experience and learning these things. Because for instance, when I was younger, Photoshop was kind of a new thing. Not everybody knew Photoshop. And we didn't have the internet with 8 billion tutorials on how to do Photoshop stuff. So you just had to like, I stayed up after work, after hours, and I played with it and I made mistakes. And I was like, oh, how do I do this? And how can I figure it out? You know, and I read the book and there's a lot of skills I learned early on in my career just by doing it. Nobody asked me to do it. I didn't have any deliverables as part of the task that I I wasn't solving a problem as part of my job. I just wanted to learn how to do it because I knew it would open up new doors for me. Now, if you want to learn something new, there's so many avenues. There's so much information at your fingertips. I don't know how to specifically say if you want to be a residential architect, as an example, and you currently do jack-in-the-box rollout stores, how do you become a residential architect? I think that you got to seek out people that do what you want to do 
and it can be just from afar and you can just like look and see like on Instagram, it's a great platform. You can find people that do what you like to do. They represent the things that you want to be, the skill set that you want to gain and just pay attention to what they're doing and then follow it up, read books, do research. I mean, there's not really much else you can do if you're not going to get that experience from your job and you don't have a mentor available to you. I think to Andrew's point, go find a mentor. Like, go volunteer at the AIA. Go find that person. They're there. They're not hard to find. Yeah. Or reach out on the social media stuff. I mean, granted, sometimes that may be a hit or miss, but you never know. Sometimes it might come through. And I would say, like you're saying, if you find someone that you want to at least emulate, really try to figure out what makes them tick and you know how they do the things they do and see about not necessarily copying those things, but emulating that or practicing right the way that they're doing those things or the task that they're doing or whatever it is. I think that the amount of information that you can find, like you say, is limitless these days, it seems like. Now, granted, not all of it's good, but it's still out there. Right. I think it's very interesting how people, I'm trying to think of the best way to say it without sounding like a jerk. <laughs> if you're looking for a mentor, don't go find like the busiest person you can find and ask them to be your mentor. Mm -hmm. Put some kind of consideration because there's probably someone who is somewhere between where you are and what you want to be. And you can find people that can help you with stepping stones. I get asked a lot of times, hey, you know, can you teach me this? Can you teach me that? I'm like, no, I can't. I'm not tutoring people over the internet <laughs> in my spare time. <laughs> I mean, I, I work a lot as it is. And then through writing the blog and doing this podcast, pretty much all my spare time is taken. And so some consideration when you're looking for a mentor is to find someone who has the bandwidth to take you on. That's part of it. And sometimes that means... So don't go to the principal firm and ask them to help you out. Why don't you just pick like one or two levels that are different from where you're at along the path that you want to be and reach out to that person. Because the truth is they might be flattered that you admire them and can help them. Because most people, I think when you put them in a position to say, will you help me with something? I think most people will say yes. If you're offering up as I'm aspiring to reach the point that you are at now, I think it's hard sometimes to not say no to that. At least from my standpoint. Yeah. Sometimes it gets me in trouble, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go, Chris Raj Kumari. Hope I'm saying your name right. Okay, next question. This is a good one. I mean, this is one of those, like, it's really easy to answer. It's kind of, I go, ooh, we can have fun with this one. <laughs> this is from campaign.mo. This person asks, on a 10-point scale, how often do you bring work home with you? A hundred. <laughs> <laughs> Like, can you have more than 10 on a 10-point scale? I bring home work almost every single day. Yeah, I would agree. I will say, I think, though, earlier in my career, it was more of a zero or a one. The longer I've been in it, the higher that number gets. Because there's just, like we were talking about before we started, there's just not enough hours in the day for you to do all the stuff that you're required to do as you yeah. increase your position in the profession, right? You just can't. Unfortunately, except for maybe when you get to a, the high enough point that you're not doing much and you're just kicking it all down the hill <laughs> no, no, <that's> to, those, <laughs> to those people below you. <laughs> yeah, I, no. But I don't know that that ever happens. Well, the way I would phrase that is when I was younger, I spent a lot of my day actually doing work. Now I spend a lot of my day managing business and people and humans. So my work comes after that part of the day is done, mm -hmm. which a lot of times is when people leave or when I go home. I don't go home and draft. You know, that's not the kind of thing that I go. I don't bring 
drawings home with me and do CAD work. You know, I don't get on Revit, you know, for people who work in Revit. That's not the kind of work I do at home. I'm writing proposals and doing, you know, work logs and putting together proposals and writing workflow schedules and trying to make sure that manpower hours are allocated correctly, like things that are not necessarily with keeping water out of a building. I do a lot of that at night. Yeah. Because I don't need to talk to somebody when I do that work. So. Yeah. For me, another one of the biggest things I would do when I would take home with me would be red lines. I can do those at night sitting in front of the TV or just sitting in a chair. That would take up a lot of my time when I was, again, managing other people. And that was the kind of work that I had to get done so that they could do their work tomorrow when things started up. Yeah. So I was thinking that, let's say that you're a younger person. You're in your 20s, early 30s. I don't think you bring any work home. Like in my office, all the people that I kind of work with day in, day out, like I have, I say, will you do this for me? Will you do this? Will you solve these problems? They stay up here and they work. And when they leave, they're done. They don't go home and work more. They might be up here longer before they go home, but they don't go home and work. That's not too common. And in my last office, nobody went home and worked. That was something that we really stressed as a firm. Do your job when you're here, but go home at the end of the day. And do the things that make you a more interesting person because you'll become a more interesting architect. So our office was designed to not require people to work at nights or long hours or after hours, that sort of thing. We're like, go volunteer. Go do something at your church. Go do something at this art advisory board. Go help build ramps for people on the other side of town. Whatever you want to do. Go do something. Be more interesting. Bring that experience back to your experience as an architect. Yeah, go be a human being and not not an architect. Yeah. That's how I ran my office always is it was never, once my employees left, they were leaving. And we tried really hard to rarely work weekends or late nights at all. And sometimes when deadlines were coming in, you had to, but even then you kept those to, to really short. So yeah, I don't think you should be doing that as an early career person for sure. Yeah. That comes into, you know, right now, as of August 27th, 2021 at 6.54 PM, which is what it is right now when we're recording. On a glorious Friday. Also on a Friday again. (laughs) Yeah. It's a seller's market right now. If you're an architect at this point, there's no shortage of work for you out there. If you don't like your current working situations, you quit and go get a job tomorrow, most likely. At least that's how it is in Dallas, for sure. I mean, we have all kinds of people that are, I'm painting a disproportionate number. We've had three people leave the office in the last month or so. And the reason they're giving for leaving has nothing to do with them being unhappy or not liking the work that they're doing. It's because they're like, I'm going to go chase my dream. Hmm. One person's going to Hawaii because that's where they want to live. And they're like, you know what? There's like a billion jobs in Hawaii right now. And I can go and I I can make more money and I can go to this island and I can do something cool and I can do something young enough to where this can be a life experience for me. Another guy's going to New York City because he wants to go work on a specific project that he interned on when he was in college. And he's like, I'm going to go there and I'm going to work on that job as an architect now. That's what he wants to do. We have people that are chasing their dreams. If you're working for an office where the mantra is work all day and then take that business home and keep working at night, you can change that if you don't want it right now. Yeah, it seems so. Yeah. That's not the type of culture that people are deeming really appropriate anymore. You can make some of your own shots now. Yeah. Dictate the terms of your employment. These are the moments you got to take advantage of it. Hopefully no one from leadership in my office listening. (laughs) Okay. Next question as we're plowing through these. This comes from I am Seth Shellman. And Seth Shellman 
sent like 10 questions in, but we're only going to choose one of them. And the one we chose is, do you think current testing accurately measures one's ability to practice architecture? I can give that answer in one word. Okay, shoot. Even though it's my turn to go first. I know. I'll, go ahead. Look, no, I'm, you get to go first. I'm just telling you. I know what the answer is. That's interesting. My answer would be, I don't know. <laughs> because I think the test is so different now from when I took it. So I could tell you how it was when I took it. But at, under the current configuration of the test, I don't really know, to be quite honest. All right. Well, let me ask you a question. Were you accurately measured as a, an architect when you passed? When you passed, we were like, okay, I got this. I nailed it. No, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think I was either. And I, I took the test. I passed it when I was 30 years old. It was nine sections. I passed all nine on the first time. And I was like, I'm not qualified to stamp a drawing right now. There's no way that I am prepared to take responsibility for all the things that are involved with what I would be signing off on. I think I was 31 or 32. I can't remember. Even when I did that, I mean, granted, I, I had to start signing off on those things almost immediately because of my situation. But I don't know that I felt overly confident, maybe. I think that the testing or what gets tested is really a baseline. I mean, I don't want to say bare minimum, but that's kind of like what it is. It's like the a minimum threshold for you to be, for you to have some understanding of what may be required of you. But it, I don't think it in any way encompasses all of the things that you're going to be required to be competent in, in order to be a good, competent architect. But would you think that if the state where you live has given you a license that says you have demonstrated yeah. what it takes to be for the public welfare and safety of the community at large, you're qualified now to, to handle these things. You should be ready <laughs> to do those things yeah. when you pass the test. That's what they're saying, right? Yeah, you should be. This is true. And it's not true. It's not true. And I think it's getting even worse. I'm not making, this is not an indictment against the process. It's not an indictment against the organizations that are in place that are evaluating it. It's that now, like I have a young woman in my office. She is a killer person and she is mowing down these tests. And she worked in summer internships throughout college. She has the potential to get licensed within a, I mean, like a year of getting out of school, give or take a few months, right? Mm -hmm. The test is not going to be the thing that holds her back. It's getting all the experience, her getting the number of CEUs in that she needs to get to fulfill the entire requirement for or the AXP stuff. Yeah, that's right. But considering that she put so much time in and she worked for me for several summers and Christmas breaks, I mean, she put in the work, she's put in the time and she is like, I think she's going to take test four here. She's been out of school a year and she's about to take test four. She's taken three so far. She's three for three about to take test four. I think it's completely possible that she could take the last test that she needs within two months from now. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that she's far off from meeting all her experience, her AXP requirements, but she's not ready to be an architect. And I think very highly of this person, but she's not going to be qualified. So what do you do about that? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either. But again, and if we want to be really, I don't know, get into the semantics of it, he's just talking about your ability to practice which I, we could get into the weeds on that. But I definitely will say that I learned a whole lot in the process of taking my exams. 
I mean, like, I learned a lot doing that because it made me explore and learn things that I hadn't been exposed to. I think because of the office environment that I was working in at the time, small offices in a small town. So, I mean, I definitely learned a lot through that process, but I don't know that I was fully capable of doing everything. And granted, I guess it also depends on the scale of the project. I probably would have been capable of doing smaller residential projects and things like that, maybe as long as they were like from the ground up and it wasn't me having to do any renovation work and that kind of stuff, because that's a whole different animal. Well, you know, it always comes to mind when I think about this, when I think about your ability to take the test and pass it as a demonstration of you've studied properly. It has to do with like the four main types of mortar that you see. And I go, studying for the test will tell you, hey, guess what? There's type N, O, S, and M. Those are the different types of mortar. And this is the different ratio of cement, lime, and sand that goes into making each type of one. And why would you use one over another one? These are the things that you will study when you take the exam. I don't necessarily think that that's what puts you in the right place to do what you need to do, because that's one thing out of like a billion. I don't think that anyone's where they need to be until they're in their mid-30s, quite honestly. And I don't know that that's a popular opinion. I wonder if there's some kind of like, I don't want to keep adding more and more kind of red tape, like, oh, well, you're at this level, so take this test. And then in a couple of years from now, you'll take another. Like, there's not like these continuing qualification levels that you have to demonstrate that you meet in order to advance your way up through the 10 levels of being an architect. But I, I do think that you can be a licensed architect and not really be qualified to practice architecture in the way that me as a 53-year-old practices architecture. Maybe, maybe. I think it, there's so many factors involved in it. That's why it's so, it's so hard to say. And also at the same time, right, this is a, it's a standardized test. It doesn't take into account your own experiences and your other knowledge that you have. I mean, all these kinds of things. There's just so many things involved in, I think, being able to have the ability to practice. And again, under what circumstances are you practicing? A test cannot take all of that into account. So... Well, here's what I wonder. I wonder if it's a direction, and somebody kind of asked a question about this, but do we start getting licensed based on areas of specialization, which we're already becoming more and more specialized? The architects used to be basically master builders hundreds of years ago, and everybody had like ownership of their responsibility. But like, for example, I have people here that can design and detail a 30-story office building, and they could not detail a single family house. Mm-hmm. Like they wouldn't have the slightest clue on where to begin and how to do that. Mm. Right. So is that a direction that's a possibility or does it just become like certifications? You're an architect now, but then you get like another certification in this type of work or another certification in that type of work that demonstrates your ability to perform in that arena. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Another layer to add to that is this whole licensure upon graduation thing, which is happening already. Yeah in the States, but it's going to start growing in popularity. And I don't know that, I don't know that at that point, yeah, you're really ready to be a fully practicing on your own kind of architect right out of school. Yeah. You know, actually we could go down a rabbit hole on this because where you teach is one of the first schools to actually offer that licensing upon graduation, if I'm correct. Uh, just in Texas. There's several schools already that have been doing it for a couple of years, but we're going to be the first in the state of Texas starting in a few days. So how does that actually work? I'm okay going down this rabbit hole, but how does that actually work? Well, essentially they work more during school and that's how they're going to get their, their AXP credits. And then 
for my program, it's a six-year stint because it's the undergraduate and the graduate degree combined. It's a longer, it's a longer process of being in school, but then it's geared more towards getting experience and semesters of internship as opposed to semesters in Europe and those kinds of things. It's just a much more focused program. And we're not going to have, you know, it's not like we're changing over the entire population of the college to that. You know, it's going to be a very select, limited number of students sort of every year. That It's going to grow over time, but it's never going to be the entire population of the department. Not every student is going to do that. Is the premise, though, that you start school and then six years later you graduate with a license in architecture? Yes. Man. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I mean, I was in school for six years. Yeah, I was in school for seven. <laughs> yeah. Okay, interesting. Well, we'll have to keep an eye on it. Yeah. Okay, so, no, that's the answer. <laughs> yeah, what was the question? What was the answer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. no. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew and I are joined once again by our good friend, Steve Burns, FAIA and Chief Creative Officer for BQE Software. How are you doing, Steve? I am fantastic, Bob. Thank you. It's nice having you back on the show. But I thought that we'd take a minute and just tell everybody a little bit about why you're on. And it has to do with BQE. So here's a little back history for everybody who is familiar with Steve and being on our show as often as he has, but doesn't understand why we have him on his show. Founded in 1995, BQE is a leading cloud-based software provider to professional service firms worldwide. After acquiring Archie Office in 2009, BQE solidified its foothold in the architecture industry while expanding the company's offerings to include project accounting and CRM. And we're going to be talking about the flagship product, BQE Core, which is a comprehensive cloud-native business management platform that streamlines the billing and accounting process while improving operational efficiency. Named as one of the best business software solutions for invoicing and billing by PCMag, Core is recognized for its intuitive features that simplify and automate operations for business owners and their teams, especially those in service-based businesses like architecture. That brings me to what I want to talk to today. Business intelligence and artificial intelligence are not buzzwords. They are real technologies that impact the architectural profession, as we're all aware. And if you don't embrace them, exploit them, we're going to get ourselves kind of crosswise on the wrong side of history here. Let's talk about artificial intelligence when it comes to BQE Core. So Steve, Andrew, and I had a chat about this a couple of weeks ago, and it wasn't something that was meant to be on air. And so Steve, in real time, like sitting in his living room, starts saying, hey, Google, what is this question? It's like, who are my three hardest working employees or who build the most time? And do you remember who had worked the most hours in the response? It was probably me. It was you. We're like, oh, man, <laughs> was that was you. such a setup right there. Like, who's the hardest working employee in the company? <laughs> And he goes, Steve Burns, F-A-I-A. <laughs> That's a really cool thing, though. So we actually have some examples. I wanted to give people an opportunity to hear an example of what it sounds like when you have a conversation with Google. Or What's the platform that you're hooking up to? Well, we're using Google Assistant. I could be having a Google Hub next to me or on my phone using the Google Assistant app and just start talking to it which is what you'll probably share some snippets from a conference where I gave a five-minute nonstop conversation with a BQE Core architect. Yeah, it was amazing to hear it. Okay, Google, ask Core Intelligence, how much do our clients owe us? 
Your accounts receivable as $294,562. Anything else? Do I have enough money in the bank to pay my bills? Yes, your account balance is $728,281. What else can I help you with? Update me on the Pasadena Elementary School. The project is doing very well with a profit percentage of 22%. Pasadena owes us $12,789 with $15,249 of work in progress. Do you want to know more about Pasadena? Sure. The utilization rate for Pasadena is 98% with a total of 1807 invested hours. Anything else? No. Thanks for using Core Intelligence. So when you demonstrated it for Andrew and I, yeah. I went home and told my wife about it. She had this look at me like, you're way too excited about this. <laughs> oh, stop that. <laughs> that was pretty amazing. It was really cool. What's interesting, though, is one other aspect of AI is, is the self-learning portion of it. So sometimes you might have come across a grammatically incorrect phraseology or something like that in the thing. And when it's corrected, it always knows in the future that's going to be fixed. Actually, the interesting thing is, is we also learn what people want to know. So when people ask questions, the system is cataloging all the kinds of questions people want to know about their company or their projects or their people or their clients to help the system develop more and more answers to those. So the self-learning is things we're kind of familiar with as well. Like in our app, if you start tracking expenses while you're mobile, like I just had dinner out with Bob and Andrew and I took you guys out for a great dinner. I took a picture of my receipt. When I note that that receipt was for meals and entertainment, the app itself is recognizing, ah, meals and entertainment. It was associated with a vendor that is a restaurant because the mobile app is recognizing that the the vendor that the receipt is from is listed as a restaurant. So it knows in the future to always make anything that's related to a restaurant, a meals and entertainment thing. Yeah. So I appreciate you coming on the show today to chat with us. Special thanks to our sponsor, BQE Core Architect, cloud-based software for time and expense tracking, billing, and accounting. Visit bqe.com forward slash LOAA and receive 20% off a 12-month subscription to Core Architect. And special thanks also to Steve Burns, FIA, for joining us again. Always a treat. Uh, likewise for me, Bob. Thank you, Bob and Andrew, for inviting me back. Oh, yeah. It's always a good time. Enjoy it. All right, Steve. Have a nice evening. Yeah, thanks, Steve. It was good to see you again. Likewise. Bye, guys. Take care. Okay, so this next one comes from Kaylee Day. And... The question on this one is, how do I tell my boss I am thinking of leaving if I don't get a raise? <laughs> and you know what? That is, that's a good question. I don't think it's a particularly hard one from like a factual standpoint. I mean, you pretty much tell them. I mean, it should be pretty straightforward. Because <laughs> what we would hope is that there's open dialogue. It doesn't have to be like, I go in there and I slam my fist on the table and I go, you know what? If I don't get this raise, I'm out of here. Like, that's not the way to do it. It has to do with you going in and if you're trying to, if you want to stay and you want a raise, you go in and say, look, I like my job. I like being here. Uh, I think the value I bring to the firm is not reflected in my current level of pay. And I would like to ask for a raise. There you go. Yeah. Say that. What I just said, go say that. <laughs> Literally that exact thing. Exactly. But then don't get 
I would say don't get, not offended, but don't get put off if they don't say yes immediately. Or if they say, well, we've got to think about it and look at it and whatever. I mean, I think it depends on where you work, but even still in every architecture office, we're not just sitting around with this extra pile of money waiting for somebody to come in and say, hey, can I have a raise? There's a process and there's things that have to be examined and evaluated and, and understood. So I would say don't take it personally if they don't say yes immediately. Right. Give them an option to say, let's talk about it. And let's see if we can work into it. But also don't let it go on to be like, well, I think in two years from now, that's not what you want, right? Right. You want to set a little bit of a timeline for that, but don't get taken aback if they don't immediately jump up and say, yes, you got it. An extra 100K in your paycheck right now. Yeah, an extra. <laughs> well, here's, here's another way of looking at it. There's one of two ways that it can go, really. I mean, there's really hundreds of different ways it can go. But generally speaking, either you are worth a raise or you are not worth a raise. And sometimes the thing that decides one or the other is not necessarily you are not in the same place mentally as the person who's evaluating your worth in the office thinks it is. Like, not currently that I'm aware of. But there are people that I know that think they are literally the greatest architect that walked the face of the planet. And you know what? They're, <laughs> they're not that great. Like, you're not that great. The value you bring is not as high as you think it is. And they have this self-important inflated view on what their worth is. Mm-hmm. And so clearly if they go in there and say, I demand a raise because I'm amazing. They're like, all right, well, we don't. So hasta la vista. You certainly don't want to come in from a demanding standpoint. But sometimes you might not get the answer you want because there's a disconnect between like where you're at versus where you think you're at. The fault might be on your side of things, not necessarily on the employer's side. And that's not me speaking as the employer. That's just one possibility that it could go. The other is, is that, I mean, a couple jobs ago, I worked at a place that their methodology is that they were going to give you cost of living raise at most unless you made a stink about it. Like they weren't going to go, you know what? You're actually worth more to us. So we're actually going to pay you more. We're actually going to pay you more than what you're asking for, because we're recognizing your value that you bring to the office. And we want you to be happy. Not everybody does that, right? Because if I've got five $1 bills in my pocket and you want another dollar, it's coming out of my pocket and going into your pocket. So there's got to be a reason. I'm not just going to go, well, you know, whatever, it's fine. I got four others, so I'm still killing it. There has to be a reason why you have that because, and I had this conversation peripherally with someone actually earlier today, and they were asking, we were talking about, hey, if I bring work into the office, I think that I should get like a bonus of- Like a finder's fee kind of thing or something, huh? Yeah, a little bit. Like if I bring in a project that has a $100,000 fee on it, I think they should give me like 10 grand. And I go, first off, that's ridiculous. And I'll tell you why. (laughs) And I walked them through the logic of why that is. And it's not to say that it doesn't have value and that they don't deserve something, but it's hard to determine up front because the number of projects that we do where we don't make profit on them is higher than what most people would imagine. And I go, we don't know if we're going to make money on your job or not. Yeah. Right? So if I take your cut off the top and then I lose my shirt, then I kind of go, well, someone else is going to have to deal with this. Like there's other bad things that could happen. Like we might have to let somebody go because we can't make our payroll because I gave you $2,000. <laughs> no, that's mm-hmm. it. I'm playing with that. But there's so many moving parts and considerations to it that you have to think when you go in and you want to ask for a raise. First off, I go personally, if you just say, look, this is what I think I'm worth. And I don't even think you need to bring a dollar number, even though if I'm the owner, I'd say, well, 
what kind of raise do you want? If we're going to have a dialogue about it. I'm going to ask you. Yeah. I'm going to say, well, okay, what do you want? If the answer is not no, we're actually thinking about letting you go. If you're not on that track, you need to be prepared to say, and this is what I would like. And I'm not sure that you need to come in with 10 reams of paper worth of evidence that supports the position, the amount of money you're asking for. You can probably just have a very frank conversation and say, look, I think I'm worth more because I think I bring value to the firm and I want to stay here. And I'd like to have a conversation about how we can go from where I'm at to someplace that's closer to what I think I need. And they'll say, okay, well, what is that number? And then have a conversation about it. Mm-hmm. And chances are you're going to end up somewhere in between, which I think that's how any, when both sides get a little and give up a little bit, that's how good deals are made for the most part. One thing I will add to that conversation is that when you go in there, to me, this goes without saying, but just to make it clear or to maybe emphasize it is when you talk about this, your worth, talk about your worth, not your worth comparison to someone else's in your same position. Don't come in there and say, well, I work more than this person and I do more than that. Talk about why it is that you deserve the money, not why you deserve it because you're getting paid the same as somebody else and you do more stuff. Talk about the stuff that you do and don't compare yourself to someone else in the office. Don't come at it from that direction, I think. Yeah. Because you know what? Your employer should have a pretty good understanding of what the market's going to bear. And if they're just completely oblivious to your value, then, you know, I don't know, maybe you should think about going somewhere else. But have patience. If you're at a small firm. Well, you need to give them some time to process it, quite honestly. You yeah. can't walk in and go, yeah. I want to raise. And they go, uh, okay, here it is. I mean, sometimes it just takes a little bit of a little dialogue and a little time to work it through. I will tell you this. I did work at a place where somebody came in and they go, I want a big fat raise. And you know what? They deserved it. They deserved the raise. And they went, no, we don't have the money, which was also true. <laughs> and the person goes, well, the reason we, don't, we can't pay anymore is because we're paying X, Y, and Z for all these other things. And this person goes, well, okay, well, that seems reasonable. but uh, how much are you paying for my insurance? They go, we're paying $6,000 a year for your insurance. They said, okay, don't pay my insurance anymore, and I'll take $6,000 raise. And the owner went, uh, okay. <laughs> right? Yeah. The bad thing about that was that owner was mad at that person. Oh. Thinking that, like, hey, I paid you $6,000 more, and I shouldn't have. And I don't think that you earned it right. And it created this very kind of terrible relationship. Mm. He didn't view them in the same capacity while they stayed in the office. And so sometimes if you think that you're just going to maneuver your way into more money, there might be consequences that that come along with that. Unforeseen. Yeah. And along those lines, I mean, the reason that I keep harping on the patience thing is to me, one of my biggest regrets is I, you know, I lost an employee to a situation like this, but I didn't. I didn't feel like I was allowed enough time to make it happen. It wasn't that I didn't want to make it happen because I really did, but their sort of impatience on the matter caused the rift and I I couldn't, I had to rearrange some things to try to make it happen and they didn't have the patience to do it. And it wasn't that I didn't want to do it. It's that as a small business owner, there were some things I had to do to modify to make it happen and they just didn't have the patience for it. Yeah. And I mean, I lost a good employee over that, that I didn't want to lose. Yeah, I remember that story, actually. Okay, let's go to the next question. Mm-mm-mm. Let's do this one. Is from Cameron Reese 18 And the question is, is the return on investment of getting your master's from a more prestigious school worth it? I don't know whose turn it is. But I don't either. 
you're the teacher, you're the professor. So <laughs> I'd, I'd like you to weigh in on this one first. Okay, that's fine. I've always had the same answer for this even before I was teaching. It depends on what you want to do. I agree with that. I agree with that, by the way. Right. I think it depends on the career path that you think that you want to follow. Now, one, if you think that you're going to want to do educational work or you want to do something, not educational projects, but like go into teaching, or if you want to do what most people call, you know, sort of alternate career path, follow different, a different path, then maybe that might be worth it to go to a more prestigious school. I think if your goal is to become an architect in practice, I don't know that your ROI is really worth it to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to go to a top two school in the country for architecture. I say that because I think, again, I used to tell my employees, they're like, well, all I want to do is get licensed and I want to stay in Texas. And I said, you know, if that's what your goals are, you don't need to go to Harvard. That's not going to benefit you in a way that you think it will if your goal is to stay in the state of Texas and just go work for a firm. Harvard versus somewhere else, there's not a huge benefit there and you're going to be paying that money back to your 87 years old. But if there are other paths you want to do and if you're sure you want to do educational things, then I think, yes, it may be worth it. But again, I think that's, it's a tough call. When I was in grad school, I spent time in Portland and I lived with a guy who was an architect there and he got his degree from Harvard and it took him, he said, multiple years to find a job because nobody wanted to hire him because he went to Harvard and there was this sort of idea that, you know, this, ooh, you went to Harvard, you're too good for here. The only way he ended up finding a job was working for somebody who actually went to Harvard also. Interesting. I think there's a little bit of that that you have to battle with sometimes. But go ahead, your thoughts now. Okay. So I guess we're conceding here. There's two different ways why master's degrees figure into it. One, you have a, an undergrad degree that's either a four-year degree or an unrelated major, and so you have to go to uh, get a master's. So that might be one of the reasons you go, and the question then is, well, how prestigious of one do I need to go to? So that's one way of looking at it. The other is, I have an undergraduate degree. I have a professional. I don't need to get a master's in order to get licensed. So this is me pursuing some other kind of, I have another reason why I want to go to graduate school and get a master's degree. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. That was actually a different question. Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it is, but I... No, that we, that we didn't answer. There was another question about that that we didn't answer. What's there? Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to pretend that that's the question then. And so... <laughs> It's, you know, it's, my, it's my show. So here's the thing. Part of it has to do with what you said. If I want to go teach, I might really want to go to a more prestigious school because that might move me to a different part of the country. That's more portable. I might want to go, I'm going to teach here. I'm going to teach there. I'm going to teach in this part of the country. If I just want to practice, right, and I'm doing it as part of my curriculum so I can get licensed, I absolutely do not think that going to a prestigious graduate school for the sake of just having a certificate from a prestigious architecture school is going to be worth the money. I will supplement that by saying I do not think that there is a huge difference in the cost of these programs since I'm looking at what my daughter's paying now, the schools we're looking at, they're all pretty much super expensive. Well, graduate school is a little bit different though because it's more and some of them are even crazy more, but yeah. Well, if I'm looking at $60,000 a year for these 10 schools and then I got one that's like if you look at the rankings and all that kind of stuff, it's a lot of money. No matter how you look at it, it's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And if you're just doing it to fulfill a requirement to practice, that sort of thing, of the 50 people I engage with every single day, I couldn't tell you where 45 of them went to college. Yeah. So no, 
I don't think it is. And I'm not even sure that 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 level, that that's really the question. It's like, what are you going to do with having this prestigious, you know, I went to Rice, I went to MIT, I went to Cornell or Washington or Yale or Columbia, or Notre Dame, any of these ones that are highly ranked. What does that particular brand name get you? You're assuming, well, I'm going to get a better education. That's why you would do it. It's the prestige is not to say that I went to X or Y or Z. It's because you're assuming I'm paying for a better, higher education. That's the assumption I would make. Mm-hmm. I'm going to the school because it's a better school. Do I think you can be successful with a degree from a non-prestigious school? Absolutely. Is that the question that we're answering? If it is, then yeah. You can be a great architect and not go to a prestigious school. Yeah. I mean, I agree. It, probably half of the architects that people admire as being great. <laughs> These days, it seems like half of them didn't even go to school for architecture. They did something else. But I'm in complete agreement. I don't even know that the prestige really equates to a better education, to be quite honest. I think there are probably arguments both for and against that, just because it's ranked so high. And, you know, you hear about it while you're in undergraduate school that, oh, this is the best architecture school in the country or region or blah, 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 whatever. Doesn't necessarily mean that that's the case. And also doesn't necessarily mean that's the case for you. I don't know that I would want to go to, let's say I want to go to Columbia if they don't have something I'm interested in. But I just want to go to Columbia because I want to say, well, I got my master's degree from Columbia. I think there's, again, a lot of factors involved in that. But the biggest one being, what is your path? Like, what is your goal of getting that degree? Like, what's the purpose of it? Again, is it just to fulfill a requirement or is it to do something else that's going to take you in a different direction? I looked this up while we were talking and it had to do with the average out-of-state cost for a bachelor's program in architecture with a four-year degree is $45,000 a year. Master's degree, which are two years at that point, mm-hmm. they said typically between $27,600, which means you're paying uh, 13000 and change per year. So that's well below $45,000 a year, but all the way up to 72000 which is $36,000 a year. That's the way they looked at it. Yeah. So I go, graduate school is still cheaper than undergraduate school. However, like we're still talking about it's six years versus four years. And what are you going to do with that? You're going to get licensed and hopefully you're going to get more money because you're licensed. And everything changes if your goal is to either practice architecture or you want to be a professor. If you want to teach, then I'd say you're better off because where you got that degree matters at that point. That's part of your appeal. You know, like schools will sell your degree as, hey, we have professors from with these degrees. It looks better on your CV as a professor, depending on the school that you go to, I think, a lot of times. But I don't think it matters a whole lot. You can go to regional schools and still kill it with a local graduate degree. Yeah, in the profession. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, okay, let's move on from that one. Next up. I'd be surprised if we don't get some interesting feedback on that one because... A lot of people go that path now. There's not a lot of five-year programs out there anymore. So yeah, it seems like most of the people I engage with now, they have master's degree. In fact, we have a guy, I didn't even know this. He's a great employee. Not only do I not know where he went to undergrad school, he just announced that starting this week, he's getting his master's and working full-time in this office. And I was like, wait, what? He's been here for like five years working, but he's only got a four-year degree, so he was never going to be able to get licensed, which I did not know. And he's like one of the most gifted people we have here in the office. I mean, he's amazing. Yeah. And again, I don't know where he got his undergraduate degree. 
but he's gone to local school to get his master's for the purpose of getting his license. He's going to be working here the whole time, right? And his trajectory hasn't changed one bit. So, yeah. Okay, let's go to the next question. And this is from Bird61. And it was, how did you know when it was time to transition from one workplace or firm to another? I don't mind putting in there, assuming you aren't fired. <laughs> assuming, <laughs> assuming you weren't you told, were told to leave. To leave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know what? I feel I'll take this one first because. Yeah, you should. I've changed yeah. so many jobs. How did I know? I was bored. Or I, I didn't like what I was doing. That was it. You know when that is. I worked for a firm that I actually liked what we did. But I thought, okay, I feel like I got it. I feel like I don't want to keep doing this for the rest of my life. I'm not growing. I'm not learning. I don't feel like I'm being challenged by the things that I'm doing. And as a result, there wasn't this like thrill of going into the office. I don't know if it's just, I don't know if that has to be a job requirement, but I'm super happy that when I wake up in the morning, I actually look forward to going to work. I look forward to talking to the people that are working on my projects. What kind of problems do we have? How can we work together to solve it? How can we make something better? I live for that. I love that kind of stuff. And there are a lot of these jobs that I left after a short period of time. I think I have this story somewhere. I told it and I quit after like four months at this one place. And they were yelling at me like the whole office could hear it. And they're like, well, you certainly didn't give it enough time. You weren't here very long. You didn't give it very long. And I said, I look around and I don't want your job. So why would I stay here? And everyone was like, oh, like, oh my Burn. God. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't mean that in the absolute savage manner that it, you know, apparently came out. Got interpreted, yeah. But I was like, I don't see me going down this path because I look at you and your success and you're the king of the hill. I don't want what you're doing. I don't want to be you. So rather than sit here and like work towards a point in space that I don't want to be at, I'm just going to go ahead and leave right now. Yeah. And me on the flip side, haven't had much experience in that. I mean, at all. I mean, I had different choices to make, but I think that it would really be about when you feel like that you're not growing anymore, that there's not a potential for growth and you don't see it. You may have reached a point where you're at right now where you're not growing, right? And that happens sometimes. You kind of plateau out a little bit. I think that happens in everybody's career. But if you can't see the potential for growth from where you're at, I think that's when you say, I've got to move on because I'm literally stagnant. It's not that I'm at a plateau. It's just, this is it. I've kind of capped out. I don't see myself growing anymore. And it doesn't necessarily mean promotions and things like that, but I just mean like professional growth. I'm not going to learn more. I'm not going to do more. I'm not going to do whatever. If you can't see that, then I think that's probably when you say, all right, I've got to look for something else, a better opportunity for growth. Well, you know, you said something there that I went, huh, I didn't really think of the question in those terms. And it had to do with, is it time to transition because I don't get opportunities anymore? Is it time to transition because they can't afford to pay me what I need to be paid or what I think I'm worth. There's other reasons why you might decide it's time for you to transition from one workplace or firm to another. I don't think it's always just growth. Mm. You might be continuing to grow, but you're like, uh, I do everything that the partners do. True, I guess. Right, I do everything the partners do, and they can only pay me the wages of a drafter because we're so small and there's nowhere for me to go here. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you leave because... There's no path for you to get beyond where you're at, Yeah. right? Like you can continue to grow and be awesome and develop and get even better at the things you do. But until somebody dies, there's nowhere for you to go. You've hit that ceiling. 
Yeah. I mean, it has to do with firm size sometimes. And I can't really speak from this, but you might be a, a woman and you've worked your way up to a point and you feel like you've hit a glass ceiling because the current leadership that's in place isn't ready or prepared to make place for you in their hierarchy. And I bet there's a lot of women that feel like they're currently in that position. And I would say, you know what? It's time for you to transition out. You know, it's time for you to go to a place where they'll make room for you. And you know if they're not. There's lots of reasons why you might leave a place or transition out of a place. And it's because there's not a peg for you to hang your hat on. Right? That's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. You know what? And I don't think you need anybody to tell you that. You might be looking for someone to confirm your feelings about it. But I bet you know. If you're one of the people in those positions, you know. Right? Yeah. It's just like, uh, do I do I do it? Do I pull the trigger? Do I make? Because, you know, changing jobs is a big deal. Yeah. Right? You've worked for a long time to get where you're at, but you know if you're in that position. There's a certain part of me that feels like if you're already questioning it, then the answer is yes. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, That's a really, if, there you go. Nailed it. If it's already questioned, well, the answer is yes. Time to go, right? Yeah, there you go. Okay, so we've been at this a while, but we have one really easy question that I know Andrew would really like to answer. <laughs> I don't know if I would or not, but yeah, go ahead. Oh, we know you would. But we also have another question I think we can answer very quickly. I kind of put it on here because I go, yeah, I kind of would like to answer this question, but I don't want this to be a super long show because we've already been at it a while. So I'm just going to say it. This is from Architect in the City. And their question was, what made you stay and be happy in the profession? I can start off where you picked up. I mean, you know, if you're not, there wasn't anything that made me happy. You know, sometimes I changed jobs because I wasn't happy. But it wasn't the profession in and of itself that made me unhappy. Like, I've never thought, God, I wish I'd been an accountant. (laughs) I've never once thought that in my life. Yeah. And out of all the vocations that people have that I'm friends with, every single person has moments where they hate their job. And they don't like it. And they're like, well, I don't want to go to work. or I don't get paid enough. Or this sucks. Or my manager's the worst. Or my boss is terrible. Or I don't. Every job has that. That's not specific to this industry at all. So it really has to do with what made me stay and be happy. One was just state of mind. I chose to be happy. I choose to look for the positive side of things. And I think positive thinking is underrated, (laughs) right? I mean, I think that you can choose to look at your circumstances and look for the positive things and you'll find them. And so if, again, like Andrew said in the last question, if you're, Asking yourself the question, like, why am I staying here? Why am I doing this? I'm miserable. Maybe you should not do it. (laughs) I mean, maybe you should try to find a different avenue for whatever, some kind of different outlet for what your talent and skill set is. I think part of it is finding your place. And what I mean by that for me is that I've seen it happen in colleagues and I mean, even, you know, myself, is that at some point you just figure out this is where you fit and then that's what makes you happy. I don't want to, I feel like there may be a lot to unpack in this question about what made you stay and be happy in the profession. It makes me feel like you're in a bad place. Hopefully you're not. But I think that if you're not happy with where you're at in the profession, it may be about that time to transition to a different job, a different office or something like that. Because I think that if you like or love architecture and design, there's somewhere for you to fit in the profession that's going to make you happy. Yeah. I would urge you not to work in one office or two offices and say, God, I hate this profession because the differences in all those, in all of us as firms and everything is so great. But at the same time, you shouldn't be in it 15 years and go, God, I hate this. Let's try something else. 
Well, if you're in the same job doing the same thing for 15 years and you hate it, I think that that's a different sort of circumstance. I mean, I'm kind of the poster child for this. I change jobs all the time. I went from big and firms to small firms to back to big firms. I worked on big projects to little projects, the residential projects to interior projects. I mean, I kind of did it all. And quite honestly, I didn't find a place that made me happy until I was in my mid-30s. I was seven jobs in. And it wasn't because I sucked at any of them. I mean, I didn't get fired from any of these jobs. I just was like unfulfilled. I felt like I hadn't, like Andy was saying, I hadn't found my place. But once I found my place and what I thought my jam was, man, it was a lot different. Everything was like, everything was great. But I will also add that last little bit before we get to the other question is that I'm not always happy. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not either. Overall, yes. But there are times and even sometimes extended periods of time where I was just miserable. But even in those times, I wouldn't want to be doing something else. Yes. So that's the whole, I'd never wanted to be an accountant. Yeah. So, okay. You know, we kind of got all these questions. I was like, this is an Andrew question. So <laughs> we're for sure going to do this one. Yeah. And he's laughing because he knows, he knows which one it is. Yeah. Oh yeah. Cause I highlighted it. I knew it was a question too. Yeah. But you don't know which one. So the way we did this is Andrew <laughs> highlighted his and he did a good job and he broke it down into like, oh, this is career and this is money and this is early development. And this is, you know, whatever. So he tried to take a question from kind of each one of these sections. And then there's these ones that fall into the like, what color underwear are you wearing? <laughs> you know, there's those kind of questions. And he highlighted this one question. <laughs> but he didn't know which question I chose. But I was like, we have to do this one. Because this is Andrew's jam. Sure. I'm going to answer this one first. So Sounds that good. you have more time to answer it. Like, you can wax poetic about this answer. I won't okay? because we're short on time. But yeah. Well, we can just delete one of those other questions if we need to. <laughs> You know, the one, if I'm slurring my words, we'll get rid of that one. All right. So here we go. This comes from Muddy River Design. What is your favorite style of beer? All right, this is easy for me because I already answered this question earlier today. My favorite style of beer is the cold one that's in front of me. That's it. (laughs) That's my requirement. (laughs) I will Uh, say there's certain beers I don't like. Some taste like I'm licking an old dirty penny. I don't like that. I don't like those kind of beers. And you all know, all you beer drinkers know what I'm talking about. Uh-huh. Dirty penny taste. Mm, I don't like it. I don't like it. Yeah, that's fair. But other than that, you can put almost anything in front of me and I'm good to go. Yeah. The other answer to that question is free. That's my favorite style of beer. That's also true. The one I don't have to pay for. <laughs> yes. The cold free one in front of me. Yeah. Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah. I know I've struggled with this one. Actually, I have maybe two answers. As Bob has indicated, I am quite the beer nerd. I drink lots of beer. Well, I shouldn't say I, I try lots of different types of beer. I don't drink a lot of beer these days, but I have a refrigerator full of all kinds of different beers. And so there's two, two styles of beer, I think. And they're really kind of neck and neck. One is a, a porter, which is a dark, malty, really heavy beer. Most people won't want to drink it because it looks like a cup of black sludge almost. But that style is a really favorite style of beer of mine. And then the other is, I don't even, it, it's monk beer. <laughs> Belgian monk beer, like Maritsu and Chimay, um, those kinds of beers. Trappist, they're called Trappist Ales is what they're called. But those are my two favorite kinds of beers. I'm dying to go to Belgium to the monastery where they brew Chimay or Maritsu beer. You have to like ride a bicycle there and it's out in the middle of nowhere and all this stuff. And I want to go there and they make cheese and, and beer, right? So I want to go drink beer and eat cheese made by monks. 
That'd be fabulous. All right. There you go. <laughs> if I can ever ever get to Europe. <laughs> I was like, if you can make that bike ride. Uh, yeah. <laughs> is, is it uphill or downhill? <laughs> Either way, it'd be rough these days. Afterwards, <laughs> afterwards, you don't want to ride uphill on afterwards, right? This is true. Okay. So there's your question. I think, well, we answered 10. Whether or not 10 make the cut into the final episode, we'll see because we're, uh, we're in it. So there's the questions. More questions might show up, just kind of trickled out through various social media platforms, or we might turn one into a post, or we might do a live show, and we kind of tackle more of these questions. I think it'd be fun to do it live so that people can say, yeah, but what about this, or what about that, and uh, you're wrong, you know, whatever. I would like that. So, but we're just going to jump right into the would you rather. And like I always do, I workshop this question <laughs> today. I came up with it like around... Two and a half hours before we recorded. <laughs> and we talked about it. And people were like started going, what about this? And what about that? Which could make it interesting. But whether or not we decided to get in those rabbit holes, I don't know. So here it is. And not we. I didn't get any of that. You talked about it in your office. I got dropped this, you know, an hour ago. Yeah. Okay. Boo-hoo. Here we go. <laughs> Would you rather be... And I, you know what? Before I even say the question, mm -hmm. I know Andrew's answer to this. Of course you do. This is simple for me. This is easy for you. Would you rather be alone in a one-room apartment for two years? Think of it like a prison cell, but like not actually prison. So there's like carpet on the floor. It's not a stainless steel toilet, you know. Would you rather be by yourself in this one-room apartment, let's say, or live with someone you absolutely detest for one year in that same room? So by yourself for two years or with someone you hate? For one year, but you're not by yourself. Mm -hmm. So Andrew's going to say he wants to be by himself. Yeah, I was like, do I even have to answer? My answer is by myself for two years. No question. I think you're going to be. Here's the reason why that's the wrong answer. You're going to be crazy. Well, actually, let me ask a few questions. What is the situation? Is it literally like a prison cellish environment in the sense of like, I don't have any contact with the outside world. I don't have a TV. I don't have a computer. Is it that, or is it just? My normal life, but I'm in a small room. I have all the same things I have now, except it's in one room and I can't leave for two years. That. Yeah. There's no interaction. There's no talking to human beings. Yeah. Piece of cake. There's no like, I'm answering the door to sign for my Uber meal and saying, hey, dude, nah. what's up? Like, you're completely isolated. Zero human interaction yeah. for two years. Done. You will be crazy man when it's done. No, I won't be. 100% believe that should be true. Nope. He's <laughs> just like, no, that's facts. I'm just facts. No. If I've got internet and television stuff, no. And now if I was in there without anything, like if it was just me and the walls, yes, probably. I would probably still choose that though, but <laughs> I would really? still be crazy. Yeah. I don't want to be around people I don't like. You're Are you kidding me? You're a, you're a psychopath uh, then. I, I don't think I could tolerate it. And I'm not the kind of person that could turn an enemy into a friend. I just don't operate that way. <laughs> we, well, we don't, we don't even know if that's an option, right? The whole idea is the premise is that you hate this person. Not that you're going to like eventually be buddies with them. Like you hate them. Day one, hate them. Two years later, you still hate them. <laughs> hate them. And we start putting in all these things like, it's one room. So that means the toilet's in mm -hmm. the room, right? There's like, you don't even get to go like hide away when you're doing your business, mm -hmm. right? And then I was like, what if there's only one bed? <laughs> you have to share a bed with the person you hate. 
Some married people might say, well, that's already happened. <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> it is terrible. It's not true. So I chose the person I hate because I think that I would be, <sighs> it'd be agony. You couldn't take it. You couldn't take not interacting. Even if it was just you and that person having arguments, even if it was violent interaction, you'd you be know fine what? with it. No, no. That's the, that's the thing that I worry about because it's the hope that I could get them to like me is what would, mm-hmm. which is what would motivate my behavior. That would drive you for the year for sure. Yeah. But the thing is, is it's not, we didn't say that. The question was that I hate them, not that they hate me. For me, that would be worse. If the question was someone you loved that hated you, right? Because the, the premise is, it's not going to change, right? The premise it has to do with hope. So if I really cared, I loved somebody and they hated me and I was in that room with them, the hope of getting them to convert to like, why don't you love me? Mm-hmm. Like I do all these, I make the bed every day, <laughs> right? I do all the things. Yeah. That would, I wonder if that would break me. I think that would be really, really hard. But if I hate that person, that might drive me crazy. That might drive me crazy. But I don't think being by myself, I don't think being by yourself for anybody. Now after COVID and all that stuff, there's like so much evidence of people out there that like just how damaged and weird and broken people are getting when they're <laughs> lacking interaction. And these people still get Zoom calls. I mean, they still get to interface and have exchanges with other live human beings. And they're still like, oh my God, this is the worst ever. You get <laughs> none of that by, you're by yourself. Yeah, which is why I feel like I could do it now because I'm just, I'm more accustomed to it. You've pre-gamed it with COVID? Yeah, yeah. All right, let me ask you this. Let's see if I can't, since it's so obvious and easy for you. (laughs) All right. To to be by yourself. What if, would it change if it was, I don't think it would, but as a hypothetical, right? Mm -hmm. Would it be different if it was uh, opposite sex? Would it be worse or better if you were in a room with someone of the opposite sex that either you hated or hated you for that year. Because I think if I was in a room with a dude that I hated or that hated me, the way guys interact with each other, or like you stay on your side of the room, I'll stay on my side of the room, we're done, that's it, right? Like I don't think there'd be a lot of interaction going on. You'd just be a lot of, your, your breathing is irritating me, that sort of thing. <laughs> and why would you want that? That's what I don't understand. Like I agree with you, but why would that be better than just being by yourself and not having to deal with that? Because I sit there and think there's probably some way that I can go through my day without being aggravated. The hope. Hope is what like leads you to get out of bed every day. The hope that things will be better. Like I'm going to put on my noise-canceling headphones and your breathing isn't going to set me off anymore. I'm not going to be triggered all day long of every day. But then right? you're just not interacting with that person anyway. So it's just the fact that there's another physical person in the space that that's what does it for I mean, you? Well, I don't know. Maybe I say, hey, what do you want for dinner? And they're like, I don't care. Not, hey, do you want from dinner? Eat and die. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's not just pure hate aggro 100% of the time. I got you. But just they do something like you're like, oh, they didn't put the lid down on the toilet. Or like they didn't, you can't put the toilet paper back on the roll when you use the end of it. Well, but if you're in the same room, you can just sit there and tell them, don't get up without fixing the toilet paper. Yeah, there'd be like something just <laughs> aggravates you, right? Just like it's something. But it, I go, does that mean like everything of every day aggravates you that they do? I, I don't know. Like they're limping and you're like, that's a fake limp. And it just like <laughs> sets you off. <laughs> you know, like doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. Their breath right. is terrible. Uh, Your well. breath is terrible, dude. You're stinking up the whole room. Yeah. But for me, I don't think it makes a difference. No difference. 
if it's a person of the opposite gender or whatever, it, no, I still doesn't matter. Well, I don't know that it matters for me with opposite gender either, but it, it would be worse if I liked somebody and they hated me than if I hated them. See, and that's funny. I think I would do it the opposite. Like if, okay, let's say if it was that I was in a room with somebody that I either I loved or liked or whatever, but they hated me, I might actually take that option. Mm. Because at that point, then I have hope that I'm going to flip them. But if it's, if it's me that hates them, I don't think I'm going to change my mind no matter what they do. <laughs> so I don't want to be in there hating someone for a year. I'd rather be alone for two years than spend one year like full of hate. Yeah. All right. Well, there you go. I'll be interested to see if somebody has like a like year. I, I can come up with a different variation that goes, eh, maybe, or this would be different, or possibly if it was that. Like I can work myself into going any different possible myriad of directions with this. You're like, nope, 100% by myself. There's nothing in the room. Nope, by myself. All you're going to eat is liquefied gruel. Nope, by myself. Like I, I'm pretty <laughs> no, sure I, I can just make told every... you the one. I told you the one if it was somebody that you I said liked. Maybe. Like that's way more enticing. I mean, that gets close to fifty yes. fifty. That gets close to fifty fifty. Though that's close it's to a even, yes. Yeah, but it's not even fifty fifty. Yeah, You're but, not even fifty fifty. But if it was fifty one forty nine, it's a yes in my book. So it's really close. All right, all right. Well, it's interesting to know. I mean, if it was like somebody like I just really, really had a super love or infatuation for, then it would definitely be a yes, probably. <laughs> and they just, oh. and then they just hated me. Or by the time it was over, I would hate them. What if there was threat of physical violence on their part towards you? Oh, no. No. <laughs> You're like, what if they couldn't hurt you but just inflict pain? Like, nothing was permanent. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, you sleeping, all of a sudden you're like, oh! I wake up and somebody's punching me in the face. It'd be like sleeping with pouring my- a glass of water on you kind of thing. Sleeping with my kids when they were <laughs> four and five years old. All right, let's move on. Okay, so Ask the Show ran through, I don't know, eight, nine, ten questions. We have another 80 to go at some point. There's a lot out there. So thank you for listening to the show. Let us know if your would you rather would be aligned more with myself or with Andrew. I'd be curious to see how that works out. And uh, thank you for joining us today on episode 83, Ask the Show. Special thanks to our sponsor, BQE Core Architect, cloud-based software for time and expense tracking, billing, and accounting. Visit bqe.com slash L-O-A-A today and receive 20% off a 12-month subscription to Core Architect. In addition, shout out to our media partners, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. If you liked today's episode, please take the next 15 seconds and head over to your favorite podcast listening app and hit that subscribe or follow button so you can get hot and spicy new episodes automatically downloaded every two weeks while you're there please consider giving us a comment and i would greatly appreciate it if you leave five star what color underwear am i wearing rating be sure to visit the original life of an architect.com for show notes links info and photos from this glorious episode thanks so much for tuning in take it easy everybody cheers <laughs>